Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. In season 11 of the podcast, we are exploring resilience, failure and forgiveness, leadership, belonging, and a variety of other topics that when done properly will help us perform our best. Today's guest has one of the most unlikely paths to success. Sven Nader was born in the Netherlands, where he spent several years in orphanages. When he came to America, Sven fell in love with the game of basketball, and despite never playing in high school, he became a community college All-American, a two-time national champion at UCLA, and played 12 years professionally. He is the only player in history to lead the ABA and NBA in rebounding, and he went on to coach Christian Heritage College to a national championship. In this interview, Swen talks about the journey that led him to play professional basketball, and we focus on the leadership lessons he learned from his legendary leader at UCLA, Coach John Wooden. Swen shares Coach Wooden's approach to time management, giving feedback, discipline, conditioning, and the tremendous care he showed for his players. Swen finishes the interview by talking about the mentorship he received from Coach Wooden in the decades after playing at UCLA. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Swen, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thanks, Dara. Good to be here. Could you start by telling us about your background? And let's start with your childhood, because I think you have a very unique childhood that our listeners might find interesting. Yeah, it was interesting. I was born in the Netherlands, 1950. I was the second. My sister was first. I was the second. And my little brother was third. Life wasn't that great uh, where we were. So one day my mom and stepdad and my little brother came to visit us. And they said, we're going to America. But my mom and stepdad said, we're not going to take you right now. We're going to take your little brother. My sister and I were then immediately farmed out to a foster home. And then another foster home, and then another foster home. And uh, I think there were three or four. Finally, somewhat of an orphanage where kids were there, didn't have parents, and they could be taken care of. So in, in the orphanage, somebody came over from the airlines, and my sister and I were called to the office. And there, uh, our director said, this is such and such, and she's from KLM Airlines, and she's here to take you to America to be with your parents. And so this was a really, really great day uh, because I wasn't having a really good time in that orphanage. How long was? How long had they been gone? That was about four years. My stepdad had no thought of bringing us over. Then he didn't want us. He didn't want us. But we found that out later. So then the, there was a television program that was nationally televised. On Saturday night, it was called It Could Be You. And I think that turned into This Is Your Life later. Some people may remember This Is Your Life. It's a surprise show, right? And so they were to bring my mom and dad to the show on a Saturday night live. It Could Be You. And in the meantime, we're flying over from the Netherlands. And we fly into New York. And then we fly to L.A. and stay at the Beverly Hills Hotel. We went from the orphanage, Don to the Beverly Hills Hotel, the room service, the swimming pool, everything was really good. <laughs> and uh, so we ended up going to NBC for the show. We were coming out of a windmill on stage, you know, which is Dutch, right? And so, yeah, my parents were called on stage and then the host said something, you know, talked to him. Oh, you have an accent. Where are you from? My mom said, we're from Holland, from the Netherlands. He said, the Netherlands, isn't it? They have wooden shoes. 
tulips. And don't they have windmills there? Yeah. So anyway, he said, well, we have a windmill. So the curtains open up, and there's a windmill, right? Beautiful windmill, about, oh, about five feet high, flowers everywhere. We're inside, my sister and I. And uh, the ushers open the door, and we fly out. Me into my mom's arms, my sister into my stepdad. And so that's, that was that, and uh, we went home with them to Long Beach, which is, you know, just about a 45-minute drive. And my dad, my stepdad, was very, very, very angry. I mean, for the next 10 years, it was abuse at home. I mean, punching, slapping, banking with a belt on the lower back where there were whelps, chipping a tooth, couldn't use hot water in, in the shower. He took the lock off the, the bathroom door so you can go and check when you're taking a shower to see if the, the water was warm at all. You, he just beat you. Never went on a date with anybody. Never had any friends. We were supposed to come home from school right afterwards, and we were never allowed in the living room, you know, stay out of the way. And so, you know, my mom had to deal with that, and it was tough for her, very tough for her. So then I started, I fell in love with basketball. I fell in love with a lot of things, music, violin, yeah, violin, singing, guitar, but basketball, I loved. I used to fall asleep with the, the little radio underneath my pillow, listening to Chick Hearn calling the Laker games, I went to Long Beach Wilson High School, tried out for the basketball team as a junior, and the coach said, I don't want you, and just, you can, don't bother coming out as a senior. And I was the only one. I heard of another guy recently that said the same thing to me. said, you're going to be on the bench, so, you know, just play baseball. <laughs> well, his loss, because I continued to play, but then I went to Cypress College. Cypress uh, College. How tall were you in high school? Six, eight. And you were... How tall when you played at UCLA? 6'11". 6'11". Yeah, I grew after high school. I, I didn't shave till I was like 27 years old, Don. <laughs> I was puberty all the way to 27, I guess. <laughs> and the long one. But uh, it worked out. Let, so, let, let, me ask you, let me ask you this question. How, how did you... How did you just not get demoralized when the coach said forget about it you're not going to play how did why did that interest still live inside of you i just i, I love basketball and i love shooting i wasn't very good i mean i was horrible i couldn't jump i ended up having a 32 inch vertical don by the time i was all over but i couldn't jump back then and i was skinny and i was slow i was really slow i was the slowest kid in in the school for the 50 yard dash the slowest there were girls that were faster than me, too. So, and you know, I wasn't an athlete, but I had really good hands and I could show touch. I had a really good touch. So I played, you know, after school and I played against some of the team, the high school players sometimes. I'd score once in a while or, you know, I, God, I didn't know anything about a give and go or a ball screen or <laughs> a cut. I'd just give me the ball and let me shoot. So after high school, you went to Cypress Community College, is that right? Yeah, Cypress College, yeah. Cypress College, and then you got involved in basketball there. How did that happen? I walked on campus. I was 6'9", and I walked on campus, and the assistant coach, Tom Lubin, grabbed me and asked me if I was going to play, and I said, yeah. And I, my stepdad wouldn't let me play. He said, well, I'll help you. And Lubin had to go sweet-talk my stepdad and let me on the team. You got to know him and, you know, 
Oh, what a beautiful backyard. And you've got all these pigeons. Oh, my God, this is great. By the way, can Swain beat on the team? So I got on the team, and I didn't play until two games left in the season, in the, in the regular season. We weren't going to make the playoffs. But I got in the game, and I had worked. You know, I had worked hard, and I was ready. I got in the game because the center got in foul trouble. And I blocked the other center shot. I swatted it down the other side of the court. And one of my players picked it up and laid it in. I had 15 points, 10 rebounds, and about 15 minutes to play. You know, the next game, which is the next day, uh, I got 20 points. And that was the end of the season. But that summer, Tom Lubin took me into the L.A., into the inner city, into the ghettos to find games. Every Saturday, we'd find games. At first, nobody wanted me on the team. By the time the summer was almost over, everybody wanted me on their team. I had improved that much by pumping iron, shooting hook shots, rebounding, and my vertical. The next year, next season, came around, and uh, we had our first game against Cerritos, who was ranked. Cerritos College was ranked number one in the state. They had a guy named Ed Stopna, one of the team who was a really great center. Ed ranked the best center in, in, in California. We beat him. I played two free throws to win the game, and I had like 30 points, 25 rebounds, and instantly in the papers, like, oh, well, this is the guy to watch, right? Nobody knew what I had been doing that summer. <laughs> you know, I learned to play on the playgrounds. That's where you learn to play, that in the driveway. My stepdad saw the article, and he told me to quit the team. Tell the coach that you're quitting the team. I said, okay. So the next morning, I told my brother, my little brother, I said, don't say anything, I'm leaving. So I grabbed some clothes and all that, and I walked to school. And one of my teammates already had arranged and said, if you ever want to leave, you can stay with our family. So I moved in with them. My stepdad called me that night, begged me to come over because my mom was crying. I said, nope, I am not coming back because I found what I want to do, and you're not taking that away from me. So that was that. And you went on to become an All-American that year? Yep. That's amazing. That is that is absolutely amazing for people who don't realize that like that sort of transformation. It's nearly impossible to become an All American when you play from the age of five to through college. So UCLA and Coach Wooden, the legendary Coach Wooden, were kind of in the middle of this historic run of ten titles in twelve years and seven in a row, and you chose to play basketball there. What was your relationship with Coach Wooden during your years at UCLA? He was my coach, and I didn't really have a, a, a friendship relationship with him until after, well after I graduated. It started when I went into the pros, right? ABA and I, ABA Rookie of the Year, and I was leading a rebounder, and almost then everybody saw what kind of player I really was. And he invited me to his basketball camp. She had camps for kids to be a speaker, right? After lunch, the kids would sit on the court, and I would put on a demonstration, fundamental hook shots. And, of course, kids always wanted to see 360 dunks. Coach didn't like it. One time I did a 360 dunk, and he, and he said, Swim, no more. He didn't want me to get hurt, I guess. But also, he didn't want me to show up. He wanted me to say to the kids what he was had been saying to the kids, which is teamwork, conditioning, and skill. I would drive him home after those camps. I drove him home, and that was after they lost to North Carolina State. Coach told me, he said, Swen, I'm sure glad that year's over. I let too much go, and the players tested me too much, and I gave up, you know, the haircuts the, and all that. He said, 
I got a really good team next year. I've got Marcus Johnson and Andre and then Trukovic and Andre McCarter and Dave Myers. He said, don't tell anybody I said this, but we're going to win it all. And he did. When I started having a family, that's when I talked and he would give me advice about being a father. And, and then I wrote a book, which is a study of, his, of John Wood's teaching methodology. And so in order to write that book, I had to meet with him many times and talk over the phone. And the relationship started building. And then the poetry, where you know he was an English teacher and loved poetry. His dad used to read him poetry. So I wrote him probably 150 poems, something like that, most of which were about things that I learned from him. And he kept a three-ring binder with all my poems in it. It was really helped build our relationship. Would you say that he was a father figure to you? Yes. He was a father figure, but not a day-to-day. And I had already, you know, grown up, right? But in the sense that I saw what kind of a father he was, but he was more of a, uh, an adult, like the way an adult should be. He was a teacher. Coach, okay, but teacher. He taught us how to play basketball. Just could you talk briefly about your professional basketball career? I went to the ABA. I chose the ABA. I was drafted by Milwaukee in the NBA, but they have Kareem Abdul Jabbar of the team. So I didn't want to go in there and move him to a backup. That's a joke. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the ABA and played for Virginia Squires. He traded me to San Antonio Spurs a month later. And there I became an instant star. I was rookie of the year. And yeah, I think I led the league in rebounds. But the next year I did for sure. Then uh, that last couple of years, I had knee surgery. I got traded to the New York Nets where I played with Dr. J. Uh, didn't really play a lot because of my knee. Went to Virginia. And then the ABA folded. My contract was up. So I was lucky. I didn't get into a draft. There was a draft for all the players. I signed with Milwaukee. I was a free agent. Had a really good year and wonderful time in Milwaukee. Then I got traded to Buffalo for the number one draft choice the next year. So I was worth something. And uh, Buffalo was, was a bad <laughs> We weren't very good. But the nice thing was Buffalo moved to San Diego, became the Clippers. You had mentioned Chick Hearn and listening to those games with the Lakers, and then you ended your NBA career with the Lakers. Is that correct? Yeah. How did that feel? <laughs> like <laughs> having him announce your name. That must have been the incredible. Culture, yeah. Yeah. It was weird. The Lakers were really, well, it was a great team to be on, to be at that level. We had Jamal Wilkes, who was really underrated, great player. We had James Worthy, who was super fast and quick. We had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the greatest scorer in the game. I still think he is the greatest scorer in the game. Did you struggle with your identity after your professional basketball career ended? Yeah, I think I probably did. As far as missing the game? Yeah, and, and being, you know, being the man or being a professional player, you know, walking around, there, there's, that, there's some perks of being in that position and that limelight. And when you retire, you still have that status. If you're in the town where you uh, played, right, which I was in San Diego. So I was still, you know, I had that status and I got, you know, interviewed and whatever, but uh, it fizzles out. And uh, I realized, you know, it was 
part of my life and I need to move on and do something better. I think of maybe my childhood where I moved from foster home to foster home, you know, to, I kept moving, kind of helped me later when I was done with basketball and I thought, okay, here's the next, you know, place I'm going to go. And I got hired right away at uh, Christian, which now San Diego Christian College to start the bas- start the sports program. We didn't have a gym or anything, and it was a very small school, about 300 students. So I started as the athletic director and started basketball and cross country. And, well, and, and we, I was there nine years. We won a national championship, Christian College national championship. So as a coach, I got that. And that was great experience, great learning experience. And then I went to work for Costco in 1995, and I've been there ever since. When you think about the leadership lessons you've learned from Coach Wooden over the years, during your playing days and then and in the years afterwards, when you had that relationship, what comes top of mind for you? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is is uh, he had the, the advantage of knowing what winning a winning team looks like. He had been on one in high school. He had been on on one in college at Purdue. And even afterwards, he played a little bit of a semi-pro, just a couple of games, I think. But he knew what it's supposed to look like, right? And so he had this vision, and he knew what, this, what the teamwork should look like. He had it in his mind, he's seen it. The defense, what it should look like. That, yeah, you're playing man-to-man, but everybody's helping everybody else. We're shooting in the gaps, we're putting pressure on them. He knew what a fast break should look like, you know, pushing the ball up the floor um, and why that was important. He wanted to rebound. He knew what rebounding was going to look like. He wanted three guys on the board, and he wanted that quick outlet pass and get it up the floor, get the defense backpedaling. You want to keep putting pressure on the other team, keep them backpedaling. When they make the other team shoot a bad shot, get to go and get an easy layup. Make the other team do something that don't let them do what they want to do. They throw up a bad shadow or a steal. And then you're off to the races and lay it up, lay it up, lay it up. Shoot open jumpers. Don't take too long on offense. Keep the path boom. And then keep the pace up So because so they, they're not used to playing at our speed. They're not used to playing at our speed. And that's what we did. So you have to see that, right? You have to see what that looks like. And then you look at your personnel and you, you say, okay, I got, we got to make that happen. How am I going to make that happen? And, and so... And the second thing, I think you realize that you can't do this without developing people, without teaching. And this is a strength. He was really good at teaching. His practice plans were, were works of art. Describe one, because the, the attention to detail, the down-to-the-minute nature of these practice plans is remarkable. And I don't think... Most leaders in business or in sports even have an idea of how to create something like this. We always started out time, and we never ended at 5 o'clock. It was always 4.59 or 4.58. This was, so the last half of practice, or the last half hour, when we're scrimmaging and working on, you know, finishing it up, right? Don, we we knew we were going to be finished at a certain time. There's the clock. So we pushed ourselves, pushed ourselves, pushed ourselves as hard as we could. Coaches that run over practice and are notorious for running 
Well, we got to spend another 15, 20 minutes on that. Those players don't work hard toward the end of practice because they don't know how much energy they need to finish practice. So they pace themselves. So this was, you know, and then everything was timed to the minute because that's what he, he needed. He said, need 10 minutes for this, five minutes. And a lot of that was just stuff that we do all the time. So he knew 15 minutes for the three up to conditioner, the fundamentals, and this, you know, and then for teaching some of the breakup, breakdown, offense, and defense stuff. So, but then it was always revised. He kept notes during practice. So we needed a long for that, or a lot of notes about players. I mean, he needs more work on this, or he needs more work on this. Now, the first half hour of practice was we were just out there shooting. Whatever we want to do, we work on our stuff and coach would work on certain individuals on certain things that they needed for that practice. So it was individual time and warm-up time, right, for, for the rest of us. Uh, coach never worked with me on anything. I was a backup center. But, you know, he would work on the bill, the back of the press or whatever. But anyway, and then once practice started, you know, it was always a light moment. We skinning together and said, you know, something funny. And then let's go. And then we would go into our change of pace, change of direction, full court cutting without the ball, backwards sliding, one-on-one without the ball, one-on-one with the ball, sprint catch up, sprint catch up, full court weaves, three, throw the ball up, you know, pass to an, an outlet, go behind that person. And then the next group goes when they reach half court. And it was boom, 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 boom. They were hardly standing around. There were weaves, there were tight weaves, there were loose weaves, there were fast break drills, there were jump stops and pivots, there was any over rebounding drills, and there was from one thing to the other, skin, 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 and the managers had all the balls ready at the next basket for the next drill, whatever it was, right? And that lasted about 20, half an hour, and then the rest of it was break down whatever we are teaching. If we are teaching a certain part of the offense, then he would show the hole, right? Just demonstrate what the hole looks like. And then he'd break it up into pieces. So the guards go over here, the forwards go over here, the centers go over there with the coaches. And we work on the pieces. And then we put some together and finally end up at the end of practice in a five-on-five scrimmage situation. Now, this is the really weird thing. People don't know this. We were in better shape, Don, than any team in the country. We outran everybody. But Don, we never ran a wind sprint. Not one wind sprint. That means, you know, just running lines. We did everything with the ball. And here's the, the other weird thing. When we scrimmaged, we never went down and back. We'd start on one, on one end. The offense, let's say the offense is working on a play and we'd be on defense, right? Backers. The offense would we try to score, and we'd get the ball either by way of a rebound or out of bounds or steal. And then so they'd try to run their play, and then we'd go down the other end, and we got a chance to shoot, coach a ball to whistle, and the offensive team would go back on offense, we're in defense, and we do the same thing going this way. And we never went down there and back. It was always stop, restart. This is the way he taught. It was repetition, 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 and control. If you go down and back, down and back, which most coaches do, it's going to get raggedy, and you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to teach anything because when it stops, and you want to teach something that happened, you know, when the play first started, it was too long. It was too long ago. Coach was able to stop and say, "Okay, 
that was not a good decision. I think you should have let's try this. Yeah, let's do it again now. And it was always hurry up, dude, hurry up. And we were running again. And can you imagine running the same play 15 minutes done over and over again? And then working on fast break, defensive transition, and you get all your ball in him, and your fundamentals are, are being tested. With that kind of repetition, there's no wonder that we were so good at, at what we did, right? Because well, they, the offense has to execute perfectly because the defense knows exactly what the play is going to be too. So, so you really do have to be excellent. And, you know, that that's among the things that really stood out to me. His time management. Yeah, time management. One time I remember Oren was at his Encino condo and I talked to him about something. It might have been the book. And it was the NBA playoffs. And it was the finals. It was the Lakers against somebody. And I said, Coach, you going to watch the Lakers game tonight? He said, not if I can help. So his time was, you know, would always spend wisely, I think. As far as the, the practice situation, yeah, there was not a minute wasted. We got more done in one practice than probably the, the other teams got done in two practices or maybe three. Because it was that, but not only that, but everything we did, Don, was was to improve game play. Game play. How we played in the game. So I think it was Jimmy Johnson that said, Jettison all things that don't have to do with winning. Just get rid of them. Is this going to help us to play better in the games? This drill. Because, you know, coaches, they go to coaches clinics and they say, oh, that's a great drill. You know, that's a... Roy, whatever, Williams, Roy Williams shows this great drill in North Carolina in, uh, in a clinic, and all the coaches go, oh, I love that drill. But, yeah, but does that help you? Is is that a good drill for your team, and will it help you guys improve play? Yet maybe, maybe not. Or maybe revise it. Coach made up his own drills. We had drills that I could show you that are just unbelievable. So much in it, right? Uh, so pass, cut, good rebound, pass out, players cut, down cut, can get all things, ball kept, kept moving, players are just, you know, and rebounding stuff, that, but plays that improve the gameplay because what we're doing in those drills is exactly what we're doing in the games. It's part of our offense or it's part of our defense, right? So... It, it's to keep advancing. And so, yeah, we, we didn't have anything that was wasted. Everything we did helped us improve our game. You said there was nothing that was wasted. Could you talk about the way that Coach Wooden gave feedback? Because that was not wasted either. It was very precise. He wasn't big on recognition from what I understand. So could, could you talk about his approach there? Yeah, you're talking about a situation in practice where there was a a play, like maybe with the five-on-five, please stop it and say say something to uh, correct, to correct some. Yeah. It was short, usually 15 seconds, no more than 15 seconds, sometimes much less. The word good, we didn't hear much. And as far as, you know, like patting somebody on the back and saying, that was incredible. No, we never saw that. We heard a lot of goodness, gracious sakes alive. You know, where he's upset because he made the same mistake twice. So this is time management again. This is everything 
His correction was to improve, not to belittle somebody. That doesn't help that player. You know, show him how it was done right, show him how that player did it, and show him how it was done right again, right? So he could go back with that model and, and say, you know, he might give him a pat, you know, or whatever. And some guys he would need, like he said, he'd pat him on the back, some need a little lower, right? Just depends on who it is. But and he would smile and joke, you know, at times. But it was always really short. But it was like, get get back at it and let's try it again. Let's go. Repetition, 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 correction, 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 repetition, repetition, improvement. So fast that he made us want to come to practice. And a leader should make it so that the people that work for him can't wait to get to work. It's possible. In 1972, you had an opportunity to try out for the U.S. Olympic basketball team, and Coach Wooden made that happen. You had never started a college basketball game. What did that mean to you? Oh, that was <laughs> intimidating, Don. I was, now this is after my junior year, I think, and I had already, you know, I was a pretty good basketball player. So Coach, I guess, called the Olympic Committee and said, uh, they want to be able to come. But he said, no, Bill can't play in the summer. But I can send Swin. Would you mind? He, he'll just try out. Maybe we'll get some experience, you know. And so they said, sure. They let me try out. It was in the Olympic. It was in Colorado Springs at the Air Force Academy. There was Doug Collins. I mean, there, there were the best players, college players in the country were there. And then there was me. And I had decided, and that, now, Colorado Springs is about a mile high uh, above sea level. And we're not going to get in trouble for this now because it's been, the statute of limitations have already passed. But there was an alumnus of UCLA uh, by the name of Bandaway, and he had a condo house in Mammoth, Mammoth, which is more than a mile in the San Bernardino Mountains just above LA. And he said, Swan, you hear the keys? Go out there and work out. And then when you get to Colorado, and this is like a week before, right? You go out there in uh, Colorado Springs, you'll be in the best shape of anybody. That's what I did. And I worked on my outside game, Don, because I wasn't going to be down to low post and ask for the basketball. Because those guys wouldn't have passed me. They're all competing for a spot on the Olympic. So I decided to work on my outside game and go, you know, cross over and pull up. And I had a pretty good shot. So Bobby Knight was my coach, and he played me, of course, and I led the whole thing in scoring. I had 20-some points a game, and I had about 10 rebounds a game, and I made the team. They couldn't, they didn't want me to be on the team because they hated UCLA. All of them. Coach Bach, especially, and Haskins. He's from Utah. He hated UCLA. But they had me, had me on the team. So then I got on the team, we went to Hawaii to practice. I got sick. I got sick in Hawaii. Long story. They didn't feed me over there. It was a, it was a, they wanted me off the team. So I lost 20 pounds and I flew on. But I would have been on that team and I would have helped them win uh, against the Russians in the final game. You must have felt like I have arrived. That must have been an incredible confidence builder to see what you could do against these other great collegiate athletes. How do you think your life might have turned out without the presence of Coach Wooden? I wouldn't have been the basketball player, I don't think. 
been thrown, you know, going with another team like Florida State or whatever. But I might have, I might have, you know, blossomed and and led the, you know, average twenty some points a game. I was good, so I was going to just keep getting better. But choice to go to UCLA was was the right one uh, for the experience. But I think more importantly, to to know him and my teammates. But to know Coach Wooden afterwards, to sit in the den and talk to him and about real things, about the Lord, about marriage, to read him poetry, to have him read poetry to me. You wonder how they do it. You look to see the knack. You watch the foot in action or the shoulder or the back. But when you spot the answer where the higher glamours lurk, You'll find it moving higher up the laurel-covered spire that the most of it is practice and the rest of it is work. That's how to be a champion by Brandon Rice, which he would just spew out in a second. Beyond the winning and the gold, beyond the glory and the fame, he finds a flame within his soul born of the spirit of the game. And where the barriers may wait, built up by the opposing gods, he finds a thrill in bucking faith and riding down the endless odds. Where others wither in the fire or fall below some wrong mishap, where others lag behind and tire or break beneath the handicap, he finds a new and deeper thrill to take him on the uphill spin because the test is greater still and something he can revel in. The great competitor. And he would just share, and I would share, and we would, go, we would talk. I mean, that's more valuable than any championship, any rebound title, or anything. Yeah. Right. Sven Nader, business person, athlete, artist. Fabulous conversation. Thank you for your time today, and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses, and thanks to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will return next week for our final episode of Season 11 when I interview Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman. We discuss her book, Tomorrow Mind. Gabriella shares how we can thrive at work now and in the future by becoming more resilient, creative, and forming stronger social connections. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.